Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Chad from grayscalegorilla.com, and you're at another episode. I think it's episode 54 of the Grayscale Gorilla podcast. As always, we have Chris Schmidt. Say hi, Chris. Hey, hey, everybody. And Nick is back. Say hi, Nick. How are you? Cheers from uh, Las Vegas. Man, you're you're everywhere, dude. I, I I look at your posts, and I'm just envious because... Today, we've got like, I don't know, like four inches of snow here. Chris, do you have a lot of snow downtown? Yep. In fact, uh, Johnny is working from home today. That's what I would have been oh, doing no. if I was still out in the city. Yeah, it, it's weird. We haven't had much snow all year. and This uh, is the second biggest snow of the year, and it's March 13th. That's yeah. crazy. It's uh, very unusual for this, this part of the country. Um, but what's the temperature in Vegas right now, Nick? You know, a little chilly. I, I got my hoodie on, but it's uh, probably 60-something and warming up soon. So uh, I'm also uh, three hours early, well, two hours earlier than Central Time right now. So the, <laughs> the earliest podcast recording ever for me. This is nice. I got yeah, the coffee. time change too, bro. Like that must have messed mm. you up pretty bad. Oh, yeah, plus the time change, plus Vegas. So <laughs> you can add all this <laughs> together. There was, uh, there was quite a late night there uh, a couple nights ago. But uh, I'm actually uh, excited for NAB coming up as well. I know that wasn't officially on our topic, but sitting here in Vegas, I'm like, I'm having flashbacks to NAB and realizing that that's only like a month away or, or just over a month away. And we got some big news as well for uh, NAB. We're going to have a booth at NAB for the first time ever. So um, just want to get the word out to people that are making plans to come out to Vegas um, come see us at the at the Grayscale Gorilla booth, Sun booth, where Cinema 4D will be presenting. What uh, we're gonna have our first booth uh, ever. So come on, come on by. Whoop whoop. Do we want to do a, an early early tease of what we're each talking about? I think Ooh. we've all got our topic ideas, right? Mm, should we? Yeah, I'm down. <laughs> all right, then you okay, go first. Yeah. All right, I'll go first. Uh, I don't have it all done. In fact, it's only probably like the first 25% of it. But I am doing a long-awaited sequel to my tips and tricks in Cinema 4D tutorial, which I did years ago, and it is by far the most requested thing I get. And it's pretty much like during the 45-minute long presentation or however long it is with Maxon, I'm just going to cram in as many bits and bobs from all over Cinema 4D as possible. Like a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Workflow tools, cool little tricks, little just cram everything in, talk as fast as I can, which I'm pretty good at, and just put them all in there. And uh, it's definitely the one that, that gets requested and that I get the most comments on from back in the day of just like like cramming everything in that's possible. So I'm yeah, looking yeah, for yeah. Awesome. I love the I reason love those presentations you do, Chris, because there's always somebody in the audience I'm watching, and everybody has their own like, "Why didn't I know this five years ago?" moment, and they're like, "Why didn't I know that's five years ago?" Thank you. Like, there's so much good detail uh, when you jump into those things. The reason the reason I don't do these more often is it actually takes a really long time to build them. It takes a long time to put them together because I have a really high threshold for what counts as a good tip or trick. Like, you know, it could be like, oh, uh, did you know that you could fit to parent a bend deformer? It's like, no, 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 that's not good enough. That's not good enough for something I want to put in a presentation. So I really stress out about things that I think are novel and things that I didn't know for a long time and like really detailed, neat 
things. So that's that's why I think it works so well because it's easy to talk about like little things that maybe you know your average person doesn't know, but it's a lot harder to really dive in deeper. So so that's that's my plan. I've already got a list of ones that I think are pretty cool already, and I'm just going to keep adding to it. So what are you guys thinking? Heck yeah. Dude, I can't. I, it's funny. Um, I think our all, all of our talks are kind of similar in a way, I, and I think that's a good thing. I'm excited, number one, to sit at that uh, your tips and tricks because I still watch your old tips, um, your old one that you did, at, you know, before I was even at the company. It gets, it's one of the things that actually helped help me learn Cinema 4D, really. Um, so yeah, I'm looking. I'm doing something kind of similar, which is more, but a little bit more about. I'm basically doing a presentation that's I wish somebody would have given to me when I came from 3ds Max into Cinema 4D, and that is like how do I do a job in Cinema 4D? Like how do I? How does the project structure work? How does the naming stuff work? How do how all these like production things that I was used to doing in other applications from start to finish on a shot? I wanted to know how to do it in cinema, and I had to like hunt around all these different tutorials to find it. So I'm doing a presentation where I'm taking one of the shots from our um, our Gorilla Grade Lutz promo, which we'll talk about in a minute. Um, I'm taking one of those shots and kind of breaking it down from how I pre-vised it to how I set it up to render out for final, and all the tricks along the way in terms of production. Uh, so that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, that was crazy. When you, when you were putting that together, you're like, oh yeah, I'm going to make a, a 3D commercial for for Lutz. And then like two or three days later, you're like, okay, here it is. I was like, holy cow, <laughs> you put that together from scratch? Like what? Yeah, I mean, that that's another thing too. Like I think a lot of people don't really know that, um, well, you know, I think a lot of people underestimate the power of Cinema 4D and what you can do with it in production. And if you just follow some really simple rules or guidelines, you can produce a lot of really cool content in a short period of time. Um, and so the, I'm going to give you all my tips and tricks on how I do my previses and how I name, how I never have to name a, an, out, an output ever again, how I use tokens, how I use takes, how I use all these things to, to make production go faster and easier. Yeah, dude, that's going to be great. The, the, yeah, the, the, the turnaround time on that uh, promo, by the way, um, I know we, we, we talk um, sometimes about our internal timings and stuff like that, but that was literally a last minute idea to, to, to come out with a fully rendered 3D promo to show off our LUTs. Uh, I know it's a little bit my fault. Uh, <laughs> well, no, 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 it's, it's mostly Chad's it like, fault. <laughs> it's mostly Chad's fault because Chad made, he made like the 2D one. You, you, you took a bunch of video footage and it looked so awesome that we're like, that looks so cool. We want to see a 3D one. <laughs> I know uh, that was, that was, and, and you know, when you suggested it too, it was like, ah, uh, it's one of those things where like, I don't know, Chris, you know, you know how this feels like when somebody suggests something that you know is probably the right way to do something, but you just really are like, mm, not what I, you want to hear right now. Yeah, It's like, uh, I guess I'll do it. It's like, damn it. You're right. I know. I know. Yeah. But, but yeah. You know, like three days later, here it is. It looks, it looks awesome. I mean, the, the, it's a testament that some of the, uh, quite a few comments already on YouTube are like, wait, I had to watch it the second time when I realized it was 3d. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but, it, it's fun. Uh, so my, yeah, again, I think we're all doing something similar, which is getting back to kind of getting back to the roots of why we choose Cinema 4D to do our work. Um, 
us to Cinema 40 in the first place. I think that's kind of a theme with all of us. Um, mine is going to be um, basically really similar. Like some of the things that I I wish I knew to work faster in Cinema 40. My um, what I always am obsessed about is speed and not redoing anything more than once in any piece of software, right? So anytime I could find a, a tweak or a thing that I could do 10% faster or even five seconds faster, it's not necessarily about the five seconds that I gained that first time I figured out. It's all the extra five seconds that you compress down for every little tip so that every time you work, you know that you could save hours because of uh, iteration time, because of not searching for things that you can't find. and So I'm gonna go through some of my tips that I think help me work faster. Um, and it'll be all the way from beginner tips all the way to some more advanced tips. So I may have to ask you, Chris, You know, I think even the stuff that you throw out of your presentation might find its way in mine, because like, I, I think some of those basic tips, um, like fit to parent, I'm, I'm, I love that tip. Because there's always new people coming into this world. And as Cinema 4D grows, as our audience grows, I think it's nice to repeat some of those that you may think or I may think that everybody knows. But, but there's new people coming into this, uh, into this world every day. So if we could show them things like you know, uh, Shift-C shift for search or fit to parent or those simple little things or hit to, hitting Alt while you grab a null and it automatically parents, I think those little things... Um, will be some of the basic stuff, and I'm also going to go into some more production-based things to really get your your iteration time faster. So, uh, yeah, working on that presentation this week, actually. So, excited to see everybody's. Yeah, it's going to be good, and uh, I'm I'm just looking forward to getting into some warm weather. That's what I'm really looking forward to. I think more than more than anything, I just want to be somewhere that where it's warm. <laughs> I was going to say, even if you have to go across the country to get it. Exactly. But the big news that we have to discuss today is, as of right now, while you're listening to this, uh, we have released the Gorilla Grade Lutz. Out now. Big claps. Finally done. I think we showed it showed it like a year ago, maybe? I don't remember when we showed it. We may have showed it at Seagraph, actually. I can't remember. Anyway, it's been a yeah, long time coming. So what are the Gorilla Grade LUTs? The Gorilla Grade LUTs are a hundred different look LUTs, and I'm going to explain what that is in a minute, uh, that you can apply to your renders, to your footage, uh, to your photos and Photoshop. Because they're LUT files, you can use them wherever LUTs are used, which is in a ton of different applications. Chances are you already own at least two of them that are probably able to take these LUTs right now, Photoshop being probably the most common. Uh, and then the second most common would probably be After Effects. I think After Effects is um, probably the, the second most used. But if you're an editor, you can use them in Final Cut. You can use them, if you're gonna use them in Final Cut, you have to use a plugin though. You can use them in Avid, you can use them in Premiere. Um, yeah, really super versatile uh, color looks. Now, what they are, are their, their actual color grades that myself, Nick, and other colorists and artists that we know have, have given us and we've put them all into this one collection of amazing looks and uh, a lot of them uh, are, are well not a lot of them I'd say a quarter of them are very cinematic in fact we Chris and I work very hard uh, well 
Chris was just feeding. I was having fun. Chris was just feeding me images of movies. Uh, I was trying to match the. I was trying to come up with a color grade that matched the movie. So well, some that, of them. That was, a, that was a fun process because I don't. I don't know anything about color, but it was like, okay, we're doing cinematic looks. I was like, ooh, there's a bunch of movies that I'd love to get that look. So I was going through the movies, grabbing screenshots, putting it together in Photoshop, and being like, make this one, make this one, and then Chad would put it together. <laughs> yeah, that that was uh, that was cool because it was it was kind of like. A lot of my favorite films are your favorite films, so it was kind of fun to like go through that process and like try to match that kind of grade. Uh, but anyway, yeah, so those are available now, and you can go to our site and check them out, and we've got neat little quick start videos if you're wondering on how it works with the application that you use. You can go check mm -hmm. that out. Um, but I guess... Um, if, you're, if you're not familiar with LUTs yeah. too, uh, uh, I know, Chad, you've been using them more you know, in production and being in the industry like you were, understood like where they came from. But to me, they were kind of a new thing that popped up in the last few years, or at least became more popular in the last few years. Um, I think partly because of all the digital cameras out and the ability to shoot like really flat uh, with, with some of these digital cameras, people like Philip Bloom and, and, and other like filmmaker artists were coming out with these LUTs in order to get these really specific looks. And as they became more popular, I was like, well, if this is really a standard, you know, this, this works for more than just filmmakers. It should work for everybody. And as I heard myself go on and on about color correction, about how everybody should always work and bring, at least bring it into After Effects or Photoshop and do some basic color correction, um, these LUTs started becoming making more and more sense. So uh, I just wanted to set that up a little bit, but I I – have really loved the workflow. You know, as somebody that obsessed over color correction and, you know, I, I, my, my tool of choice was curves, right? Do you guys use curves? Chad, are you oh, a yeah. curves guy? Yes. Chris, I know you use some curves. So I was obsessed with curves early on because it was so versatile. You could really crank the contrast and get subtle looks. You could raise the black, uh, you know, uh, point on your blues and get these really nice looks. If you guys have watched tutorials, where I finish in After Effects or Photoshop, you've seen me pull out curves. And while curves is a really popular and really powerful way to do this stuff, I found myself always go, going back to the same kind of formula when I used curves. I kind of pulled out my curve, my, my, my special Nick curve that I use on so many things. And while I like that, look, it's not as uh, versatile and it's not as powerful to see what you know, multiple different looks can do to your to your footage. So what I like about these LUTs too is the ability to just go click, 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 and see instantly over like a hundred different looks on on whatever you're rendering. So that to me has been a game changer. Even as somebody that knows how to manipulate curves and get the look that I want, having 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 looks that Chad made in my browser is really compelling to go click through and see what different ones look like. Yeah, I think the um, I, I guess I, I I should go into a little bit more detail on how they work. So for the yeah, I was going to say, uh, Chad, what is a LUT? <laughs> yeah, okay, so there's that. Um, but okay, let's start with that. So let's start with what is a LUT. LUT stands for lookup table, and uh, what lookup tables were made for were to emulate a film stock. So if you were like a visual effects artist, or you were somebody working uh, maybe at a studio, and you have a computer monitor how would you be able to see what 
what your film was going to look like when your effect got printed back out to film. You needed to use what was called a LUT. You needed to have your monitor essentially show you what it was going to look like when it went back out to film. Okay, that's how they that's how they're most mostly used back, you know, maybe five, ten years ago. Um, since then they become a lot a lot more versatile. So all a LUT is is a conversion. So all a LUT is is it converts one value to another value. Now in a 3D LUT, which is what our LUTs are, they'll convert a color value uh, both in terms of you know brightness, saturation. It basically converts that it converts one value of color to another. So if I if I let's say I wanted to turn and I'm pointing at my wall here for all of those of you listening. Um, if I wanted to make this wall, which is kind of blue, although it's kind of hard to tell in um, in this lighting, if I wanted to like this blue to become uh, maybe this orange over here, a lookup table would be able to do that. So a lookup table would be a file that would say, okay, anything that's this blue, this lookup table is telling me I'm going to make it, I'm going to shift it over to this orange. That's what a lookup table does. So when you grade something and you and you are, are applying uh, a really amazing look, cinematic look to it, to your footage or your, your render, um, you're essentially doing the same thing. Uh, you're changing the values of the pixels that you're working with. And our LUTs do that, but they they do it in a way that we've kind of, that's what makes them kind of cool is that you can save your, your grade essentially in this LUT. Now it's not, you can't change it once you've, once it's there, it's there. You can adjust the intensity of it all you want and, and really kind of, you know, make it, make the effect less and less uh, uh, apparent or maybe stack to a couple different LUTs, but you can't go in there and tweak them. Um, but the the ability to switch different looks, as Nick was saying, is really compelling because we've made presets for Photoshop, uh, Premiere, and After Effects. So the process of auditioning different LUTs in our package is really just clicking. And then, oh, let me try this. Let me try that. Let me try this. And it, it really speeds up your process of, of doing a grade after you've finished a render or maybe went out and shot something with your phone. Um, actually, the, the live action promo that we put out, a lot of the really pretty stuff that you see in that promo was shot by my friend Brad. Um, it was part of a short film that he released. And then the very beginning of it, those binoculars that you see at the beginning of the promo, that was shot on my phone. So it can make stuff look really cinematic that was maybe shot on your phone or maybe even something worse. I don't know what would be worse than a phone right now, but uh, anyway, so yeah, it, it's, does that make sense? Does that kind of, does the LUT explanation yeah, I, make I sense? Think, yeah, it was, it, it, it's kind of an interesting name or it's a, I guess it's a weird name, um, but knowing where it came from helps understand some of the technical complexity of what it is. Um, but once I found out that you can literally open it up like a preset and just select a LUT that, that you liked, you know, and just basically try, try them, um, it made the technical barrier much lower. So don't be afraid, like, you know, go, go try LUTs. Like, it, even Premiere, and I think, I know Premiere has a few film stock LUTs built in. So if you want to try this now, um, open up Premiere and go to, I think it's called the, in the presets folder, you can actually go click through some film stock uh, LUTs. Now those are gonna be a lot more subtle and really a lot different for what they do than what our LUTs do. Our, our LUTs are more designed for you know filmmakers that want a, a more unique look, 
or a, a you know your 3D render comes out, you want it to be either vintage looking or you know just add some contrast or add some nice color effects. They're gonna look a lot different, but you'll you'll get the idea um, if you open up Premiere, let's say, and just start going through uh, the looks. And you can in Premiere, you can just double click, and it'll add it to whatever piece of footage you have highlighted, and you can instantly see. What's cool about LUTs too is they render. Um, like in real time, at least yeah, in they're Premiere. They're, yeah, there's no um, there's no render hit, or or if there is, it's the playback engine handles it fine. Is I guess what I should say. And so you you double click it, you get to instantly see what it looks like on moving footage, right? So if you're doing 3D work, or even if you're doing film stuff, like I use them in our um, I use our LUTs in our YouTube intros now. So if if I've been looking a little bit more handsome in the last couple months. Uh, during the intros and outros from our tutorials, it's because I've added those LUTs um, to give to give the room and to give my skin tones a lot more um, kind of like you said a, a more cinematic feel. It, it just looks much more rich than just coming out of the camera. Um, and it's something I have to remind myself over and over again is that coming out of my camera or it looks decent coming out of Cinema 4D or it looks decent once you apply a really nice film grade and really nice look to your to your work when you take it away you're almost like oh this is what it looked like before you ever had that experience you're like well it looked good before and then I added this thing and now that I take it away I couldn't live without it so it's it gives those are the those are the kind of things that I like to work with because I know they're gonna make my stuff look better and in a in a short amount of time so uh, I just encourage people to learn a little bit more about LUTs in general and, and again, if you have Premiere, which if you have After Effects uh, and you pay Adobe, you already have access to Premiere. Download it, play around with it, and see see what that uh, feels like to you on on footage and renders you already have. Yeah. And then if you want some more, if you want some more looks and you want to see how we use LUTs, come check out the Grayscale Gorilla, the uh, the Gorilla Grade uh, LUTs, and uh, see if see if they work. I've been digging them, man. I I appreciate I appreciate the. The the work you and Chris uh, did that uh, well, it's ninety nine point nine percent Chad, so I don't really <laughs> want to go in there. <laughs> no, it's it's fun, and I've been using them on the daily my daily renders and just about anything. I've I've probably used them on ninety nine percent of everything that I've done over the past year, I'd say. So yeah, check those out. Um, and as Nick said, you don't need to really know a lot about them because you've already got the ability to use them. You, maybe you just didn't even know it uh, in both in Photoshop, Premiere, and After Effects. So yeah, check them out. Uh, which kind of like, I, th I feel like maybe, um, maybe we just jump into our main topic. What do you think, guys? Is there any, uh, any news in the render wars these days? Oh yeah, the render wars. Let me give you an update. Um, right, you're not going to do the music for me this time? Oh, what is it? There we go. Okay, so what's new? Uh, well, Octane 3.06 is coming out very soon. They've been slowly kind of pushing it out to their their main standalone app, and I imagine that it'll probably make its way into the Cinema 4D version very soon. A lot of people are beta testing that, uh, so that'll be out soon. I think that's going to add. Um, I don't, I'm not. I'm not entirely sure. I didn't read the. I didn't read everything about it. But the biggest feature is going to be that it's going to have some sort of uh, uh, threshold or some sort of ability to be. What's the word I'm looking for? Um, not biased, but 
um, God, why is this slipping my mind? Anyway, what this means is that it's going to have, it's not going to be completely just like wait for it and, and it gets done. There's going to be some sort of uh, quality adjustment, some sort of threshold value that you're going to be able to tweak in which you'll be able to get hopefully renders faster, um, meaning that it's not going to continuously think about a part of the image. If it's good enough, it's going to move on to a different part. And I'm probably butchering that because I was not fully prepared. Uh, so apologize for that. Um, anyway, what else is going on in the Render Wars? Not a whole lot. Um, Arnold just released today a new version, which I'm really excited about, uh, which has a feature that I requested in it. It's a really simple, yeah, it's, it, that's how, you know, I love those guys over there. They're really good about that stuff. Um, so I just requested a really simple feature, um, which is I wanted, when I created a quad light, to be able to pick a target right in the light. I, would, I didn't want to have to grab a, a point constraint and, like, go through that whole process. So now in the quad light, and I believe in the other types too, there's just a slot in the light by default that you can pick whatever you want it to look at. So that'll save you a little bit of time from having to um, to do that. Uh, so it just goes to show you if you are an active part of any beta and you're and and the developers are uh, you have a good relationship with the developers and you suggest things that are uh, going to save people time, then do it because they'll probably hopefully make it into the final product. Um, what else? Uh, doo -doo -doo. God, I feel like I had some news. Uh, this doesn't. This isn't necessarily about um, about renders specific, but it's kind of interesting. Amazon bought Deadline, or I should say, they oh, bought wow. Thinkbox. So Amazon bought Thinkbox that owns Deadline, which is a, for those of you that don't know, it's a render. Uh, it's a render management system for, for, you know, your farm to be able to render out, you know, tons of different jobs to your farm and have it manage them. We used it at DK for a number of years. I loved it. It's a fantastic product. Um, and they got bought by Amazon Web Services. So that's cool. Um, uh, hopefully they're going to turn it into some sort of uh, EC2, EC, what is that, Chris? Is it EC3? Is that the Amazon? I don't know. I think it's. I've just figured you're smart. You must know. This is rendering. I don't yeah, know. That yeah, that's right. Um, anyway, so that that's kind of interesting because Google owns Zinc, which is uh, a product that it purchased not that long ago, which does the same thing. It's basically cloud rendering service. So now you're going to have Amazon's going to have um, you know Deadline, uh, Google's going to have Zinc, and the two of them are hopefully going to battle and us. The consumers will win. Will reap the benefits of competition. I mean, is this is this a hint at some cloud scaled cloud based way of rendering anything at any time? I mean, I think that's some of the things that we we end up talking about on this podcast is the ability for a, a service like EC2 to scale up and down and and instantly grab a thousand nodes or scale down to a hundred nodes and be able to render at any moment. Um, yes, it seems like that would be the right play, right? Like the ability for them uh, to grab as many server machines as possible and render your your um, render your work for a fee seems like a no brainer for 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 that kind of uh, acquire. Oh yeah, for sure. I, I think that I think that it's it's a game. I think cloud rendering we've all known has been a game changer. 
um, for some time now. I mean, even the um, the promo that I did for Gorilla Grade Lutz that, you know, I did it in five days. I didn't render that on my machine here in my office. I rendered that through Pixel Plow and I would send a render up and in 30 minutes it would be already on my hard drive. And it, I don't, I mean, how else would you do that? I couldn't have done that. I, I mean, I'd still be rendering. I mean, it, it really came down to that. It, that changes the game. It, it allows smaller studios or even independent artists the ability to have the same power as uh, a larger studio would. And even a larger studio gives them the power to cheaply and more cost-effectively scale up their entire pipeline without having to do more build-out, add more staff, add more... Um, yeah, IT, all this stuff. So it, it really is um, the way that things are going. Uh, there just hasn't been anyone that has solved the GPU rendering on the cloud thing yet. I think that's still that's still something that seems really kind of hard for people to, to get. Um, I, I don't know. There must be a lot of reasons why that I'm just not aware of, but I, somebody's going to crack that. And it, it will happen. And when that does happen, I think that you're going to yep. see, you know, a lot of people that maybe have been avoiding cloud rendering because they've been doing all their stuff on Octane locally, or maybe they've built out a couple Octane machines. It's going to give them the ability to uh, offload their rendering as well, which is which is great. And when that happens, yeah, I mean, it's 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 gonna it's gonna change. It's already changing the industry. I mean. It, it kind of this kind of segues pretty nicely into our main topic actually and um, our main topic we were planning on talking about in an interview that um, the School of Motion podcast put out with Chris Doe of of Blind Studios and it's it, he's kind of a a pretty charismatic and outgoing figure I think in the industry and he had a lot of, of interesting things to say about how our industry, the motion design industry, the advertising industry is changing. And I think that this cloud rendering plays a part in that because it it's changing the dynamic. It's making um, really good work more approachable for smaller studios. It's allowing people to do more with less, which is kind of a theme, I think, throughout throughout his, uh, his, his discussion. Um, did you, you listen to that, right, Nick? Yeah, um, Chris and and his whole his whole background is actually something um, I discovered on this road trip. Actually, his who he was from uh, the bricklayer kind of controversy that that surrounded him um, maybe a few months ago or six eight months ago. Um, but I didn't know really his background where he came from. And he, and what as I learned more about Chris, I was like, well, well, dang, like he has quite a lot of credibility being um, running blind, which has been making amazing work for so long. Um, so I kind of dug back into what up to what is and, and what he has to say. And turns out um, a really fascinating character with, uh, a, I think, a lot of good intention and a lot of um, like a lot of good thoughtful thinking about design, about business, about the industry. In fact, all the, I mean, even if you're not interested in all the all the like where the industry is going stuff, go check out his new 
uh, YouTube stuff all about um, design, and he's actually teaching a lot of cool design tricks on YouTube. So if you learn nothing else, just go look up Chris and see what he's doing on, on YouTube. But um, he's really speaking about the culture of studios. He's, he's speaking about how, how small boutique studios are kind of, um, I guess, I don't want to put any words in his mouth because he, he says it in a much more uh, smart way than I will. But I think his conceit is that big studios uh, went, the big, big, big studios went away and, and in the path became these kind of boutique studios, similar to maybe where we worked, Chad, at, at Digital Kitchen. These smaller, middle-sized studios were able to, to do the same work that these giant studios are. And I think what he might say is, that we're also now in a transition where these middle-sized studios are even getting squeezed out in order, um, to, and what's replacing them is either the super small freelance uh, studios, you know, two, three, four people, or what, what he's saying and, and what makes a lot of sense is a lot of companies are actually building their own studio inside the company. In other words, Apple has a motion design studio now. Um, Dropbox has a, a motion design studio now. Airbnb has a motion design studio now, and they're all in their own departments. And they're, you know, two, three, four, 10, 20 people that are only working for that one company. And so now instead of Apple going and hiring an advertising agency, going and, and, and hiring somebody like, you know, a boutique agency, uh, they, they'll just do it in-house. They have the whole staff, they have it in there, and they don't have to worry about leaks getting out as much, right? <laughs> like if you go hire, if you if Apple goes and hires so and so studio to uh, to make an iPhone commercial, put a lot of paperwork there to make sure uh, you know uh, that it doesn't get out. But if they could do it internally, and I'm getting too far uh, past the topic here, but I think what Chris is um, what what what's interesting about Chris is the way that he's looking forward to these changes, and he's trying to uh, uh, you know say enough about it so people can make intelligent decisions with their own career moving forward. So um, that stuff fascinates me. We end up talking about you know the careers of you guys out there and what makes the most sense for you to do the work that you love, to get paid what you're worth, and I think he's got a similar interest in mind. So I would, I would highly recommend at least go checking out some of Chris's work and that, that interview that he did on um, on uh, the School of Motion podcast is really, uh, I thought was really, really well done. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And and I, what I thought was interesting is not only the trend of companies building in their own internal departments, but ad agencies building complete studios in their building. And you're seeing that everywhere. Like these advertising agencies are no longer going out to these other studios for their editorial, their graphics, whatnot, they're building, they, they're, they've done the math and they realize that we can just do this stuff in-house if we just build a studio and hire people. And so that's what, that's what you're seeing. And, and, and it's really interesting because it, it is squeezing out the middle-sized place or at least making them have to pivot and make a change in how they operate, maybe lowering their overhead or going direct to client or whatever they need to do to, to kind of stay in the game. That's what they have to do. And 
working for so many years at, at DK, when DK made the transition, everything that he was saying, I was just like, dude, I was there. I know exactly what you're talking about. When the transition was made from a motion design studio to an agency model at DK, that's why that happened is because it was like, we have to pivot. And it freaked me out when it happened and I didn't really know what to make of it, but it was interesting to hear Chris saying that they had to do the same thing at Blind. Like they had to become a strategy, uh, a strategic agency or, 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 or all that mess or whatever that means. And, and it, it, it just is, the whole industry is just completely changing. And what the takeaway is, is that it's not necessarily gloom and doom, even though the podcast that you'll listen to will ha does have a certain amount of, of gloom to it. I'm not going to lie, but um, it's better to understand the industry that you're either in and, or you want to get into than to not than to bury your head in the sand and pretend everything is the same uh, because it is changing. And whether you're working at one of the mid-level studios, working at a top-level studio, or you're starting your own company from your house, these are things that you have to be aware of. Um, I think that the, what I see a lot of people doing, and they're having great success at this, is going, finding their own path, not necessarily doing their traditional, I'm going to go talk to an ad agency and try to get a commercial job. They're going directly to clients, going directly to companies, saying, here's the products that I, or the services that I have to offer you. Um, let's work together. And this is working with a lot of smaller studios and, and uh, project freelancers. They develop relationships with companies and then they foster those relationships. Um, so that's, it's not gloom and doom, it's just changing. And if everybody just like, you know, braces themselves well, for the ride. I'll speak, I'll speak for myself. Um, early on when I, all I really wanted to do is make the stuff I saw, right? My, my interest was looking at the stuff on TV and I wanted to learn the tools to make the stuff that I saw on TV. And, and it never dawned on me to think about how, where I wanted to work or what, in what department I wanted to do that in. I just figured if I learn the tools, then eventually I'll get a job somewhere in making the stuff I see on TV. But it was really apparent to me as I started to graduate and go meet the people that were working in drastically different parts of the industry that it was up to me to decide where, what path I wanted to start to take, start to go down. I started to meet people that wanted to go work at Pixar. I, I met people that wanted to just go make visual effects for films and special effects. I, I met people that worked in commercial. Met people that you know uh, made like made models all day and, and uh, uploaded them to TurboSquid. So that realization that I was in charge of my path through my career career. Um, didn't dawn on me until later than it should have. Say, if you're just starting off, or you're just interested in the tech side of this, um, start to think about where you want to end up and, and start learning a little bit about these parts of, of where where the industry is headed because some skills and some tools along the way that'll make you more valuable depending on where you're going to work. Um, so for me, those those kind of those kind of conversations are so interesting, not only for people that have been in the industry and have seen it, but people that are planning their career and can say, oh, I never really thought about that this is the way things are going because computers are faster. Like you said, cloud rendering makes it so uh, a small team of two or three people can do 
giant work that used to need, um, uh, you know, a quarter million dollar render farm to, to do. Um, so, yeah, definitely check it out. And maybe what we do is kind of give some homework uh, to our audience, if, if, if as if you don't need more podcasts to go listen to. But um, School of Motion is doing a really good job over there, uh, doing some interviews, getting a lot of this, you know, stuff out there. So maybe if everybody goes and checks it out, we can kind of have an ongoing conversation about not only the render wars and the tech. We need a new theme song. Is what we need. We need a we need a uh, a Studio Wars theme song <laughs> and figure out <laughs> figure out where all this stuff comes into. I mean, Chris, did you have a plan when you started? I know we talk a little bit about your history of learning Cinema 4D and you were just obsessed with the, with the technical side. Did you have a plan of where you were going to use your skills or were you just like buried in the software just learning as much as you could? When I first wanted to start pursuing 3D, I did have a specific goal in mind and that was, uh, it was there was a company, I think a Canadian company called Mainframe Entertainment, and they're making my favorite television shows, which I've mentioned before, like Reboot and Beast Wars. And I just love the TV stuff. Um, and that's the main thing. That's where, like, it's kind of like watching those shows in a weird way. It, it's funny to say this, but the, the graphics on those shows are terrible. They were amazing <laughs> then, but they were terrible. But it was almost like they were so bad that I could see how they were made. It was approachable. Like, and... Uh, you can watch like seasons of reboot and you can see the season when they could start rendering shadows because before that season there were no shadows. So seeing that transition was amazing. But after I got in school and I started like diving into 3d, especially like cinema 4d, I wasn't really thinking about that anymore. And, and actually that company moved on and started doing work that I wasn't interested in. Like they started doing direct to video, like Barbie movies. So it wasn't, it was like, Nope, that's not what I'm interested in. So I just started at that point. I was like super in the software. I, I started liking the technical side more, um, and just I, I so I was just going with the flow with that stuff. So kind of I was just trying to find whatever job I could do doing 3D, and you know if it was Cinema 4D, all the better. Uh, and that just kind of worked out until I you know started hanging out with you and doing uh, making tools, which has turned out to be my favorite thing. Um, but Chad, well, I think that's that's kind of go ahead, Chris. I was just going to ask Chad, uh, like, what are your thoughts more generally how uh, this transition might be affecting freelancers? Because there's, you know, especially in Chicago and the motion graphics community, like, there's a bunch of different studios, but I, I guess there's a healthy mix of everything. Because there's a lot of places where it's like, oh, it's just a, a small place and there's three people working there. And then there's some big giant studios. But then we also have, like, you know, half the people are, are freelancers. How do you think? Is this going to affect them? This kind of transition affect them too directly, especially since we're we're in the middle of that transition already. So it's not like this is come coming down the road. This is we're in the middle of it. We can see where maybe it's going, but it's already moved a bunch. Yeah, I, I think that I think we've already seen the effects, and that is the growing population of freelancers. I mean, you think about what the meetups were like three, four years ago. They were. Probably I, w I wasn't at them, so I can't tell you, but I'm sure you could tell us that probably wasn't nearly as many people as there are now, right? Oh, well, the media has just been like hugely growing. And I will say that it's going back a little ways now, but maybe two and a half, three years ago the, in Chicago, there was a sudden migration where tons of people went out on their own, started their own small studios, suddenly went freelance, a bunch of 
people who were students or just getting into it or interns suddenly got to move into those those positions that were vacated. So like two or three years ago, there was a gigantic transition of just where people were working in Chicago. And I feel, and there was a big increase in freelancers and I think that's still continuing. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that in, in any situation when you see when you see a market kind of start to splinter the way that this is, it's it's usually pretty a, a pretty much a good thing for freelancers because everybody needs talent and they can't always afford full time staff because uh, that is very expensive to have full time staff. You have to pay uh, you know employee taxes, insurance, you know a space for them to work, all these sort of things. And so, then there's a big question often of having to have enough work consistently to justify somebody. It's like, what are we going to do in the downtime? Cause we don't always have work. Right. That's a fantastic point. I mean, that really is a reason why it's always good to, to maintain a, a strong uh, database of freelancers. If you're at a studio that you go to when, when you get busy and the work comes in, you can expand, you can contract. So I think, I, I think that it's, it means good things for freelancers I think that if anything, they might see more competition uh, with other freelancers. Um, I, I think that if I was a freelancer right now, I would be excited because there are so many different opportunities happening, not only in Chicago but all over the U.S. And if you become, if you're, if you work hard enough to become uh, a sought-after freelancer, then you can find yourself traveling all around the country uh, on somebody else's dime, perhaps which would be fantastic. So I think there's a lot of good things, a lot of, a lot of um, it's exciting, but then, you know, you have to ask yourself, there, it's a little bit of a double-edged sword because you, you'll, you can do the freelance thing for, you know, as long as you want, but just know that like someday you're gonna wake up in your 30s or 40s and be like, okay, should I have gone full-time somewhere and started to build up a, uh, I don't know, a career or something, or am I just going to be doing this the rest of my life? Um, which is a kind of a, a, an existential question that I think a lot of freelancers will go through. Um, some people are really into the lifestyle and they can do it forever. And then some people really, I think you might experience burnout or you might experience that, that moment where you're like, um, you know, 40 some odd years old and you're up against uh, a freelance gig uh, for somebody who's got a much lower day rate and will be willing to do anything to get the work. Well, so yeah, I think we had a whole so podcast it, about it, that. Yeah. About yeah. Growing what, out of what the Chris, industry. I, part, parts of what Chris is adding uh, 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 to the conversation as well is this idea that not as the freelancer pool is growing and as more people are coming into this industry um, and and as as the technology makes it, it makes it able for more people to get into this industry what he is suggesting and, and what I think is really um, a smart thing to think about is what are the other skills that you could add to your skill set that will stand you out from j just the regular freelancer so in other words he he talks a lot about the ability to run a small team the skill to take. You're a, talking a about group. Chris Doe, right? I'm talking about Chris Doe. Okay. Yes. I'm sorry, Chris. <laughs> you also have great points, and I, I try to. I try to tell you. That <laughs> you have thought it was Chris until you started getting into that, and I'm like, wait. I was like, I don't think that was implying that? at all. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt <laughs> you, but I just wanted to make sure the listeners Chris, understood. 
we're gonna get some cool glasses and a and a um, a baseball hat for for Chris Schmidt, and uh, you might have an alter ego over at NAB or something. <laughs> um, so what I what I'm what I mean about uh, Chris uh, Doe is he's bringing up the idea that these other skills, the ability to lead a team, the ability to uh, run like to be a creative director, basically, um, are skills that you want to start to add to your um, uh, want to start to add to your to your brain earlier than you think is as uh, maybe how he might want to um, uh, is he how, I'll, I'll just speak for myself because I disagree with him in in many ways. The ability for you to learn other skills other than just Cinema 4D and After Effects and the technical skills, but the ability to work in a team. The ability to lead a team, the ability to talk to clients, the ability to um, understand how billing happens are some of the other skills that will help you stand out from the crowd when it comes to working longer in this industry and working for more money in this industry and working less hours and having less burnout in the long run. If you are able to lead a team to build something, make that vision happen, you are, in the end, more valuable than just the person that can execute on what somebody else has already designed. So um, I think those are really interesting things to talk about in a general way. And I think in our industry in particular, there are so many freelancers that, and so many students that are just focused on the tech side of it that just want to be good at Cinema 4D and, and ignore some of the other um, uh, business skills, freelance skills, design skills, that, that, that it actually is detrimental to their career. This concept of learning all these softer skills, um, I'm interested more in what, what he has to say. I think in general, you know, that's something that I've always been interested in talking more about as well is well, what's what are all the secondary things that maybe aren't as fun sometimes that if you learned them will get you further in your career allow you to make better looking stuff allow you to get the job and work less hours and and more dogs and and spend less time literally in front of a screen all day so I think I think it's a good conversation that this stuff is popping up more and more I think that you know I I I see his points, but I also would argue to him, and he probably would agree with this, is that, and maybe we should try to get him on the show because I think we could talk about this for a lot longer. Um, I, there are certain people, certain artists that just don't want to be creative directors. They don't want to be, they don't want to talk to clients. They're totally content in developing the skills that they've developed and taking them further and, and all sort and all those things. And I think that it's it's often a studio's uh, mistake to assume that everybody is gonna follow the same path. And we talked about this before. And I think that um, if you are a motion designer who loves After Effects and just wants to be the best After Effects artist that you can be, and you don't want to talk to clients because you maybe get nervous or whatever, and you don't want to be a leader because that's just not who you are, it's okay. You still have a career. I just want to be here to tell you that. 
you can become an expert. You can become a lead animator. You could go work at a studio and teach other people After Effects. There are many different ways that you can go. It doesn't always have to end with you in a room full of clients, you know, talking about creative strategy. That sounds terrible to me. <laughs> it's, it is. It can be. At times, it can be very, it's not for everybody. And I the think idea, that's, yeah, the idea that you're climbing a ladder, that you, you, you go from artist to maybe creative director to like leading like departments, like the department that that is not appealing to me at all. So like, well, so like I would, you know, it's important. I think it's important to mention that sometimes because it's always like, oh, climb the ladder, climb the ladder. It's like, no, 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 no. It's not just about climbing the ladder. It's about doing what you want to do. Well, I, I think we exactly have right. both here. Like, I, if you if you think about Chris, your path and your career was very technically focused, and you actually don't sit in a room with clients. Although maybe I'm maybe I'm a client sometimes, but uh, you've you found your way to be able to teach everything right. Like you know so much domain knowledge of Cinema 40, and you're able to like share that with the world, which is amazing. And you know enough espresso, and you also, by the way, Chris. You do know how to run a team. Like you and your brothers are, are building all the software for for Grayscale Gorilla, right? So, you are you did learn the skills, um, to be able to translate from me, right? In in this case, the client, me and Chad and some other people that have ideas about how some software works, and yourself, be able to condense that down into a way that you can talk to. Uh, your brothers and have a piece of software come out the other side that does what every everyone wants it to do. So in some ways, I think you you are experiencing that. Although it's not a room full of clients, you do have the skills, those skills to be able to contextualize everything that we're building and put out uh, a technical piece of software that allows artists to do all the crazy stuff that we want to do. I think that's huge. And Chad, like you. Aren't, weren't, weren't just a you know um, um, a 3ds Max user, and you weren't just an After Effects user. You you built not only technical skills, but also ended up leading teams of of you, you being a creative director. So, um, I mean, we have we have examples here right here yeah. on the show for that. And and I I ended up making software with the skills and and teaching with the skills that I had as well. So. First I see of all, what, I, I think what, that's interesting to think. But I also want to know, Chad, what made you want to be um, a creative director and like push your boundaries and, and start to talk to clients more and, and to be able to work in that ability? Because you seem like you were always a natural at that. Did you did you God did no. you struggle with that? <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, yes. So in a nutshell, um, I loved 3D, the one thing I love about 3D in general is that it's a team sport and that you can't generally do everything yourself, even though I spent a good part of my career as a one-man department um, at a few different studios simply because there wasn't a lot of work and there wasn't a lot of other artists that knew how to do it. So when I started to work at studios that I could afford to hire a team, I was totally stoked because I'm a, I love that part about filmmaking. It's a collaborative art. It's a collaborative, it's the best collaborative art. And I also really enjoy um, building up camaraderie and, and, and putting a team together that enjoys spending time together just because that's part of my personality too, being from music and, and playing in bands. I just enjoy that, that spirit. So that part came really naturally to me. Talking to clients is something that it, it takes time and practice. And it was my 
not my favorite thing to do. I got to be honest. And but beyond that, that that it when 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 DK started to transition into more of like an agency, I had this flex muscles that I had never even thought about flexing before, which is like pure uh, conceptual muscles, not not like agency shows up with a brief and a board and we have to go make it. It's more like a blank page about strategy, about a, a company. And that's when I was like, I hit a roadblock in my, in my own, you know, career. And I said to myself, well, that's really not, I don't get enjoyment. I don't, I don't wake up every day looking forward to that. And that's really what I, I found is like, I found if I could just find something that I'm excited about every day that gets me out of bed th with a little bit of like, oh yeah, I get to do this today. I wanted to find a way to just do that. And I did that for a long time uh, at the various studios that I worked at, being able to make amazing pieces and, and spots and whatnot with these really talented people that I brought in. Um, and then once things started to kind of shift the company started to shift and the needs for me, what they wanted me to do shifted. I just, it just, I wasn't getting out of bed with any sort of excitement anymore. And so I had to find, and that's when I, you know, came on board here and now every day I'm doing the things that I love, um, which is, I don't even know how this, how do we start this conversation? <laughs> I feel like I'm like going way off on a tangent. Anyway, the, the I don't know what I'm trying to say other than, you have to be when you start your when you're a production artist you have to be aware of where you want to go but be a, be also open to where it might take you um, for me i didn't wake up thinking i wanted to be a creative director talking about some strategic you know pick your buzzword of advertising bullshit you know I, I wanted to make stuff i wanted to make cool stuff and i wanted to make films i wanted to make art i wanted to affect people's emotions with things that i create and if that is your path then do, by all means try to find a way to excel in that path know know that you it's okay not to be like oh i have this i don't I, I'm I'm a shy person that doesn't see myself as being a creative director. What do should I not get into this business? No, hell no. If you're a creative that has a drive to make amazing motion design, 3D, film, visual effects, whatever, then by all means pursue that. You don't have to become the uh, creative director. You don't have to be the person standing in front of a room full of clients pitching some, you know, new strategy. Uh, it it it's not necessarily the only path and that's something that i had guys on my team that were phenomenal they are they all work at they all moved on to amazing studios and they're phenomenal production artists and that's okay it's okay to be a production artist you don't have to be some highfalutin creative director living up here i never touch the box you don't have to go down that path you can be an amazing production artist we need those that's what I'm saying. Yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a, a good way to wrap things up. Is to, or maybe maybe that's what we could do is wrap things up. Like our final thoughts about this, um, and and not even final thoughts because I think this is an ongoing conversation that we just need to continue to have. And I'm glad we we talk about some of these things on the podcast. But you know, there is no one path. I think is a good way to to kind of put it. Um, 
that it's not just what you have in your idea when you start off in this career that you are going to be sitting uh, you know in front of the computer all day that could be your day it could also be it, it could also grow right so i think i think the thing that i always struggled with was i thought there was one way to do it and at every turn there was another person doing it a different way that showed me another successful way to do this kind of work um, and every time i saw that it was another eye opening moment for me to go oh I don't just have to X, whatever that X is for you, expand and think and see what other people are doing with the skills that you want to have and just always keep that in the back of your head. Absolutely. Be open. Somebody once said to me oh. that Love it. the, uh, and I, I, I really believe this, and I may have said it before on a podcast. He's like, and this sounds really like um, kind of karate kid ish almost. Um, so life is kind of like a river, he said. Uh, Roy Skillicorn is the the gentleman that that said this to me, and he's like, he's like, just imagine you're in a in a inner tube on this river. You have to be open to where the river wants to take you. Uh, if you try to swim a different way or swim up current, forcing your way, uh, forcing yourself down a certain path, it's going to be hard. But if you're just open to the um, different paths that the river might take. Then you then you'll be happier overall, and you'll probably find yourself in really amazing situations. I mean, think about Chris. I mean, Chris, did you have any idea when you were uh, you know growing up that you and your brothers were going to be essentially working together at a software company? The software company, I guess, is the surprising part. <laughs> I mean, luckily I've always got along with my brothers, but yeah, being open. I mean, honestly, even the creating of software, and you know, we do kind of so many different things behind the scenes. It's, you know, I, I, in a lot of ways, I forget that we're a software company. Um, yeah, I mean, th that too. I mean, the fact that you didn't really, your your story, I mean, I, we've kind of talked about our origin stories, but I mean, you're, it's a little bit more interesting, I think, that you have your family, you every day, you spend every day with your brothers, which I think is really cool. And that's only because you were open to this path and you were just like, okay, well, let's, let's try this out with Nick and see what happens. Yeah. And, and even that only came about because I ended up in a job that I just happened to find when I was kind of desperate looking for work and I found a job and I ended up being really good at doing 3D previs and I ended up having tons and tons of free time to develop tools to make my own job easier. And I found out that my favorite thing to do in 3D wasn't it wasn't to be doing like animations or anything. It was to build tools. I was building my own tools, but that was a very natural transition to me and not something I would have, uh, not definitely not something I would have predicted, you know, 10 years ago. Yeah, for sure. Well, I think, you know, we've, we've got a lot of, we've gotten a lot of good, uh, I'm trying to unmute Nick because he was walking and I was, now I can't figure out how to unmute him. I got you. I'm sorry. I uh, my battery was dying. Uh, I, I came in here and now look at. I have the best lighting. The whole time I could have been in here with this gorgeous lighting. Uh, and instead I was outside like a ding dong. But it's probably a little bit more noisy in here. So uh, and my battery was dying. Sorry about that. So we should probably wrap up. Um, uh, thank you, uh, Chris and brothers, for going down this path with me. By the way, I think it's these stories. <laughs> so interesting and, and how that happens if you trace something back um, 
it always makes sense when you are in the future and you trace things back to the past and go, oh, of course, like now you guys are doing making software and helping, you know, teaching the world Cinema 4D. Um, but looking forward is, is I think the point that I always have to remind myself is looking forward, it's hard to see where you are, you are going to end up. Looking back, it always starts to make more sense. So I like this river metaphor, Chad. Maybe we need some shirts at NAB, like, <laughs> like life, life is like a river. I think maybe I'll have a shirt that says, uh, "What in that? What? What in the f is a LUT?" Maybe <laughs> question mark. But like, or ask me what LUTs are, or I don't know, something like that. Oh, we we can we can make that T-shirt at NAB because we can all be at the Grayscale Gorilla Lazy River. <gasps> At the hotel, <laughs> and then make our we're life as a river. river shirts. Yes, I love it. Actually, I think uh, I might. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna bring my phone and like shoot a bunch of video of our booth and everything, and we'll process it all with uh, gorilla grade LUTs, and it'll look fantastic. <laughs> Dude, that's now that's some branding right there. Yep, sounds like a plan. All right, everybody, uh, thanks for joining, and uh, you know I I'm I'm hoping that you're enjoying these podcasts. I I know we have a lot of fun making them. Uh, next time, Nick, will you be back at your at your studio, or when do you get back? Uh, I think it's at, at least one more week out here. We're heading to California today. I gotta go pack my room up and, and check out here and, and head off to California meetup uh, uh, with a couple friends out there. We're we're trying to see all the state parks before uh, the government shuts them down. So mm, um, better hurry. We're, we're uh, <laughs> We're headed to um, Joshua Tree today, I think, and then uh, a couple other places in California, and then headed back to the Midwest. So hopefully, my internet connection and everything will be a little bit better in a couple weeks. So uh, awesome, man! Until then, thanks for bearing with my um, bearing with my slightly more crappy audio here and noisy background. But uh, I appreciate you guys rolling the podcast with me. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for thanks for making it, getting up so early and joining us. Uh, everybody else, thank you for listening. Make sure you hit subscribe if you haven't already done so, if you're watching on YouTube. Give us the old like if you like this uh, particular podcast. And as always, give us a review on iTunes. It helps, uh, helps our ranking and just overall lets us know how we're doing. So again, thanks, and uh, we'll see you next week. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye, everyone.